Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for joining me, everyone, this week on Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I am so, so, so excited to be interviewing Dr. Emily Nagoski today about her new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections, which was just out in January. So if you haven't already ordered it, please do, because it is fantastic. Emily is also the author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, and one of my favorite books of all time, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, which she co-authored with her twin sister, Amelia. Emily is an author, educator, researcher, activist, and self-proclaimed nerd. It's time to get naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy, a national therapy group. So let's dive into all things sex, relationships, mental health, and answer your questions with practical solutions and real answers. Each week, I'll share insights to help you build a healthy relationship with yourself, with other people, and with your sexuality. It's time to start thriving authentically. So let's get naked. And if you like this podcast, hit the download button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave five stars and a review. Emily, thanks <laughs> so much for being on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. How are you doing after your New York Times article? That's huge publicity. And I'm just so curious, like, what is that like to have the whole world know about your sex life? Uh, it's, so, I'm sure you, you will have had this experience. Part of your training mm -hmm. is thinking really critically about what moments to self-disclose. Mm -hmm. And broadly speaking, the answer is don't, <laughs> except for on very rare circumstances. So mm -hmm. this is a rare circumstance when I have self-disclosed. And writing it in the book was one thing having it published in the New York Times does feel different. Like, literally, the headline is that this sex educator's sex life went away. <laughs> uh, so it's not untrue. And I do know from the past year or so of talking about this in public, that people find it really reassuring that somebody mm -hmm. like me, who's a quote unquote expert, also can still struggle with these things. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it feels really normalizing for people. I think it does. I know it certainly felt good for me to read. It felt resonant because as a sex therapist, you know, people project all kinds of ideas about what kinds of wild, crazy, kinky, amazing sex we're having, but we're all just humans. The, you know, the sex professionals are humans too. And our right. sex lives have ebbs and flows and they have strong points and frustrating points and all the things. 
So I really am grateful to you for taking that step and really just letting the cat out of the bag about how human you are and how human we all are. Because sex is awesome, but it's also really complicated. Your new book is out and it just came out January 30th, right? Right. And Come Together is based on the reality that you had, or the reality check that you had really when your sex life changed and you decided to write down the tools that you and your partner used or that you researched and understood to be really smart in putting together and sort of reconstructing a sex life in a long-term relationship. So what would you say if you had to describe your book in maybe three words, what, what words or adjectives would really bring it home? Your goal, your, your goal for the book or the book in general? Friends, prioritize pleasure. Oh, I love that. Love that. They prioritize pleasure of all kinds and sexual pleasure included. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the big takeaway that I had from, from your book is that we really are best served to move away from this conversation about desire and move into a conversation about pleasure. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about kind of how you made that shift? The origin story is that while I was writing a book about the science of women's sexuality, I was so stressed that I had no interest in actually having any sex at all for like months at a time. Um, and I would try to follow the advice that I was putting into the book. And sometimes it worked just fine. But in particular, when, once I was on book tour and I was traveling a lot, like I would get home, we would schedule sex, which is a thing that like, if it works for you, I recommend it. But instead of what like, the responsive desire strategy is like, you put your body in the bed, you let your skin touch your partner's skin and your body will go, oh, oh, all right, I like this. I really like this person. And what would happen for me instead is I would cry and fall asleep. Hmm. And I was like, okay, so the advice that I haven't come as you are doesn't go far enough. I need something else. So, you know, I did what anyone would do. I went to the peer reviewed research. I looked uh, not at the research on desire, but at the research on couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And these are couples of all kinds, all gender combinations, kinky and vanilla, open and monogamous of all different ages. And what I found in that research was totally unrelated to the mainstream conversation about how sex works in long-term relationships. Because the mainstream conversation is all about like keeping the spark alive. And the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long-term do not talk about spark. They don't talk about desire. They don't talk about Sometimes they talk about novelty and adventure, but they don't talk about like maintaining a distance so that they can want each other across a space. They talk about pleasure, authenticity, vulnerability. Mm -hmm. They talk about co-creating a context that makes it easy for them to access, well, easier for mm -hmm. them to experience pleasure together. So if we go to the experts on how to have great sex for decades, what they say is, desire isn't what it's about. Pleasure is what it's about. There's a, a therapist and researcher, Peggy Kleinplatz in Ottawa, who leads the Optimal Sexual Experiences Research. It's one of the significant bodies of research um, that I was drawing on. The way she puts it is what kind of sex is worth mm -hmm. wanting. One of the mind-blowing things I think that I learned as a sex therapist in training and really work hard with couples to help them in part because 
The thing that really catches people off guard in a long-term partnership, I think sometimes is all of the things that you mentioned, trust, respect, liking each other. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a second, but it's It's surprisingly controversial. The idea that liking the person you have sex with, (laughs) it really helps a lot. Maybe just not not liking them is a better way to think about it. (laughs) Right. Which is hard sometimes. It's hard in long-term partnership. Like some days I look at my partner. Yeah. Some days I look at my partner and I'm like, I can't stand the way you breathe. Can you just not exist (laughs) right now? And I love him, but I don't want to be around him. And I'm sure he has those thoughts about me too. And it's, it is tricky to sort of stay in that space um, with your partner all the time. And I think those are some of the things that, that really start to wear down on people's interest in being sexual. But also I think we get lazy in our sex lives. We get familiar. We do the same things over and over again. And that can work for some people, but for a lot of folks, it starts to get boring. It starts to get humdrum. And I think they stop really enjoying the sex that they're having. And and that's to your point, when pleasure goes out the window, desire is right there with it saying sayonara. Yeah. Another Peggy Kleinplatz gem is the worst thing you can do is doing what works relentlessly. Mm. Doing the thing that you know gets each of you an orgasm and you do that over and over and over again. And you may be desiring sex, but you're not interested in sex. You're not curious. You're not exploring. You're not deepening your knowledge of the other person. You're connecting in the same way at the same level. There are reasons why people keep having the same sex over and over and it often has to do with a reluctance to look at the barriers between them and the kind of authentic vulnerable sex that they might be having people are afraid of the risk of rejection Mm -hmm. they don't want their part they're like worried that if they say i have this fantasy they're worried that their partner is going to be appalled and never be able to look at them the same way again And they're also afraid if they talk about like creating a change in their sexual connection, their partner will feel criticized and take it personally when really all it is, is I want us to be able to have a great sexual connection, especially if like this is the person you intend to have sex with for the rest of your life. You want to continue making it better. Like why do we have sex with each other? Like, why? Why? What does it contribute to a relationship? All of chapter one is the question, what is it that we want when we want sex with a partner? Pro tip, the answer is not orgasm. You can probably have an orgasm on your own. If you can't, there are whole books and workshops just about that. But when you want sex with another person, there are specific things that you want from that experience. And when you have the same sex sort of by numbers, sex rote sex, Mm-hmm. Are you getting that those needs met, that thing that you want when you want sex? Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the big things people really want from sex? So I've asked a few thousand people at this point. I started asking mm-hmm. it in in-person workshops. And then with the pandemic, I started asking it in online surveys. Um, and there are four big things that people talk about. Number one, you could definitely guess it. It's connection. Yeah. Sex is not a biological drive. Nothing bad happens to us if we don't have sex. But connection is a biological drive. We sicken and die of loneliness. And sex is one of many ways that humans have for feeling a connection, an attachment, a bond with another person. 
There are lots of other ways. And for some people, sex is a sort of peripheral way of experiencing connection. But for some people, sex is like their primary way of mm -hmm. experiencing deep connection with another person. So that's number one. Number two is uh, shared pleasure. We don't just want to rub our skin against the other person and feel how nice that feels. We want them to feel how nice it feels also. We want to witness their pleasure. We want them to witness our pleasure. There's something specific that people want in the sharing of pleasure. So connection, shared pleasure. The third most common answer people give is being or feeling wanted. And doesn't that make perfect sense, especially since so many of us grow up being told that the sexual parts of ourselves are disgusting and dirty mm -hmm. and dangerous and unlovable. So yeah. to have those parts of ourselves, not just accepted, but welcomed and sought out is so profoundly validating. So it's one of the main things that people want is that sense of like, this person wants those parts of me that are, mm -hmm. I was taught for so long were unwelcome. And the last of the big four is of something I call freedom, which is this experience of shutting the door on all the other things that we could be doing in our lives. And God knows there's so much other stuff we're supposed to do with our lives. But just tune all that out and focus your attention on the pleasurable things that are happening right now to the exclusion of all our other responsibilities and all our other identities when people can have a conversation about this stuff, what is it that you want when you want sex? And what is it that you don't want when you don't want sex? Also very mm -hmm. important. It cuts through a lot of that game we play in our heads about feeling ashamed or blaming someone. Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my partner? Is there something wrong with our relationship? No, it's just about what are what is it that we want when we want mm -hmm. sex and what is it that we don't want when we don't want sex i was just going to ask you about that you mentioned in your book that it's probably the most important question to ask yourselves right when desire feels feels elusive when you don't want to have sex what is it that you don't want when you don't want to have sex why is that question more important to ask versus what do i want when I want sex. I, I don't know that it's more important to ask what you don't want, but for sure, when there's a desire difference, when one partner wants more sex. Um, so suppose you know, we're, we've got a heterosexual relationship, for example. So we know that among couples who seek sex therapy, among heterosexual couples, uh, it is just as likely for the man to be the low desire partner as it is for the mm -hmm. woman to be the low desire partner. But let's take the stereotypical example where it's the man who's asking to initiate sex and it's the woman who's saying no. He has been taught all of his life that part of his value as a human being on earth, the way he earns the air he breathes is by being able to convince someone else to let him put his penis inside them. Right? Mm -hmm. Like sexual conquest is part of the definition of masculinity as we enact it in our culture. And so if she says no, maybe the reason she's saying no is I'm just really exhausted today, or I'm touched out from the kids, or I'm still sort of annoyed with you about that fight that we have where you never actually did apologize. <laughs> and that's all she's saying. Mm -hmm. So she's saying no penis for me. Thank you very much. But what it feels like to him is, no, you don't quite deserve the air you breathe. No, you're not quite a man after all. It's this huge, invalidating, meaningful 
emotional experience that they're not talking about because they haven't talked about what is it that you want when you want sex and what is it that you are saying no to when you're saying no penis for me tonight, thanks. Yeah, I love the, the way that you describe how that can happen in real life, right? She's saying, no, I don't want penis because of all these reasons. And he's thinking, you don't even want me because I'm not worthy. Yeah. And it's, it's such a common mismatch when folks are stuck with desire discrepancies. And it's easy to internalize and think, wow, my partner doesn't love me, or I'm not a good enough man, or I'm not a good enough woman or person, right? We have such an interesting mm -hmm. and complex relationship with sex that's been so encoded in our gender, in our understanding yeah. of gender and our understanding of our gender identity and the way that we move around the world, no matter what our gender is. And I love that you talk about that in your book when you outline what you have coined the gender mirage. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with that name for the gender mirage? It's so curious. We are living in an age when there is increased visibility of mm -hmm. trans and non-binary folks. And mm -hmm. I worked as hard as I could to be inclusive of all genders in the book. And we also live in a world where there is backlash against that. This sort of like biology is destiny throwback to the early 20th century and even earlier. Mm -hmm. As if the, you know, the day you're born, somebody looks at your genitals and declares it's a girl or it's a boy. And you're given this manual of rules and regulations about how to live in this body and who to right. love and how to love and who you're supposed to be as a sexual person. And all of it is fictional. All of it is just a bunch of lies that somebody really believes you are supposed to follow. And it's just not, it is a convincing mirage. The deal with a mirage is like, you can't not see it. Mm -hmm. It sure looks like there's water on the road, right? When it's shimmering in the heat, it really does look like water. And the, the gender binary really does look like a binary because at a species level it's not untrue that we are a sexually dimorphic species but just because something is true at a population level just because it's true when we look at it from a distance doesn't mean it's true for each individual in that population mm -hmm. the closer we get to it the more the mirage disintegrates and we see it for the lie that it always was and this is important, not just for the folks who are trans, non-binary, agender, genderqueer, gender fluid. It's absolutely essential for the cisgender people who have been following these rules and believe that there's something wrong with them if those rules feel like a bad fit. It's very When liberal. in reality, the thing that's wrong is the rules. The rules are wrong. Start from scratch. <laughs> Yeah, the rules are bogus. They were, I don't know who decided those rules were going to be the rules, but they really don't fit for the majority of folks, even people yeah, who they're say, literally like, medieval. Yeah, they are. One of the things that you mentioned in your book that I think is really important about how couples co create a context that makes pleasure easier to access, right? right. This is really beautiful in theory. And really hard to do, I think, for couples in reality, because life is hard and messy and, and there's so many things that get in the way of that. But let's talk about what you mean first. Like, how, what is co-creating an erotic context or co-creating a context that makes pleasure accessible? What does that even mean? Yeah. 
So the place to start is with the idea of pleasure itself. And mm -hmm. just like we've been lied to about gender stuff, we've been lied to about the way pleasure works. Like I, when I started my training as a sex educator, I absolutely believed that pleasure was supposed to be easy and obvious. Mm. That when someone asked me, does this feel good? I would definitely know the answer. And that's just not how pleasure works necessarily. It turns out our perception of any sensation is dependent on the context in which we are experiencing it. Tickling is sort of the standard example. I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, but it is some people's favorite. So, but imagine you're already turned on and in a connected, trusting, playful state, and you're certain special someone tickles you, that could potentially feel really nice. But if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you're in the middle of an argument, <laughs> It's the same sensation, right? Mm -hmm. It's even the same partner, but because the context is different, your emotional state is different, the way your brain perceives that sensation mm -hmm. is as a potential threat instead of something to move toward with pleasure and curiosity. When I say co-create a context that makes pleasure easy to access, I mean, Create a situation in your life, even if it's just a protected bubble of space and time, when your brain is able to create that context in which your brain interprets sensations as pleasurable. That's going to be a positive relationship situation. Like if you're feeling frustrated with your partner, it's not going to be easy to experience pleasure. Mm -hmm. If you're stressed out, overwhelmed, exhausted from the demands of daily living, it's not going to be easy for your brain to experience pleasure. If you are physically ill, it's not going to be easy for your brain to experience pleasure. If you have sexual trauma, sexual shame, if you are highly distracted, it's not going to be easy for your brain to access pleasure. So as people think about like, under what circumstances have I had easy access to pleasure, you're going to notice there are some like patterns things that are true about those contexts where pleasure is easier to access. And once you have a sense of those, you start going, okay, what can we do? And what are we willing to do mm -hmm. to make those contexts real? So you talk about an emotional floor plan. And mm -hmm. in, in your book, I imagine this is a great way for partners to start thinking about how are they feeling in the moment? What's their headspace? What's going on in their bodies? And you use the language pleasure favorable or pleasure adverse emotional states or contextual right. states. So can you break down, like how would someone know if they're in a pleasure favorable state versus pleasure adverse, especially given the diversity of what turns people on and what turns people off? Let me start by saying that this piece of science was it for me. It is the thing mm -hmm. that helped me figure out why I would cry and fall asleep mm. instead of being interested in having sex. This was the tool for me. It's not going to be the tool for all people. Um, so for example, Peggy Kleinpotz will talk about a couple who comes in and one partner says, I'm sorry, this hurts my partner's feelings, but I'd be fine if we never had sex again. And Peggy, being the delightful human she is, will say, well, tell me more about this sex you do not want. And <laughs> they're not describing joyful, playful, loving, passionate sex. They're describing sex that is dismal and disappointing. And the question for them is, okay, what kind of sex is worth wanting? Because the <laughs> earth-shattering, completely obvious reality is that if you don't like the sex you're having... It is normal not to want it. That is mm -hmm. not a sexual dysfunction. And it's not a, it's not a desire 
dysfunction. It's a la- an absence of pleasure. So what kind of sex is worth wanting? Mm-hmm. If I went to Peggy as a client, I'd be like, I know that if I could just get there, uh, we have great sex. I know that we would have a really good time, but I just, I can't. I am stuck somewhere. And the emotional floor plan is the tool I use to figure out where I was stuck and how to get unstuck. So the pleasure adverse spaces are going to be real familiar, mostly to people because it's fear, rage, and panic grief. And we've all heard of fight or flight, right? Fight is the rage space. And that's the mammalian emotional system of wanting to destroy something that is in your way. The fear space is the mammalian motivational system of running away from a potential threat of avoidance and the panic grief system is the shutdown system it's freeze it's loneliness it is a lack of connection it's Mm -hmm. quite a complex state actually but it's when you cannot access pleasure because your body is shut down what i realized is that i was I was trapped in my fear space. I was bouncing around the walls in a state of total anxiety, stressed out from work and like wondering if what I was doing was enough. So the second book I wrote is called Burnout. It's a stress book. I know how to deal with stress. And what I realized is when I got in the bed with my certain special someone, connection with someone else is one of the primary evidence-based strategies for completing the stress response cycle. So Mm -hmm. I was giving myself an excellent context for my body to release all of that stress and transition me out of the fear space with the crying and the hugging. And then what would emerge is I was just so physically exhausted (laughs) that where I ended up was falling asleep Mm -hmm. and then generally having a snack. So I would have to care for my basic bodily needs, get out of the fear space, care for my basic bodily needs, and then I could find my way to one of those pleasure favorable spaces that is adjacent to the lust space. Broadly speaking, those the three stress response rooms, the fear space, the rage space, and panic grief are usually pretty, do not have doorways directly into the lust space, but play which is the mammalian system of friendship. Play Mm. is behaviors we engage in for their own sake because everyone involved likes it and there Mm. is nothing at stake. If I had my way, all of the sex in the media would be playful, laughing sex, Mm. which is not high drama, it's not high stakes, but that's what sex looks like for couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people hear this and they're like, oh, so like vacation sex. Yes. Yeah. When you don't have to, when the stakes of your life have lowered because you've transitioned out of your usual day-to-day identities mm-hmm. and you're just in this protected play space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's play is actually number one for me. It turned out uh, when I could get from, when I take care, good enough care of my body and I get myself to a playful state of mind, there's a doorway directly from the play space into the lust room in my brain. For a lot of people, the care space has a doorway directly into the lust room. If you're feeling cared for and held and really attended to and supported in your relationship, a lot of people get into that space and the gateway into the lust room opens right up mm-hmm. and the other pleasure favorable space is seeking curiosity mm-hmm. exploration so if going to an art museum with someone gets you excited if 
like going to a culinary class. There's a Grey's Anatomy episode where two surgeons like figure out how to do this new kind of surgery and they save a child's voice. And when they get like, it's hours and hours of this surgery. And when they get back to their hotel, do they collapse in fatigue? No, indeed. They mm -hmm. go to town. <laughs> because they had this intellectual curious exploration i have friends who sold other stuff and traveled all over the world together um which sounds like a nightmare to me but for them it was things went wrong all the time usually in countries where neither of them spoke the language and they found the adventure of that to be immediately adjacent to the lust space for them does that make sense it does. It does. Yeah. And, and everyone's different and we're all normal. Exactly. Exactly. I, I love that so much about the way you write. You really are so determined to reinforce how everything is <laughs> normal, right? If it's consensual, it's normal. But we are such a diverse set of beings. So two partners might really only get activated when they're in that lust space, whereas other people might, like to your point, engage more in the play space or the care space and they might have differences and that's to be expected. So when partners do have a different um, pleasure accessible space that is sort of their preference or their default, how do you recommend they try to bridge the gap and get over that? Because sometimes it can be really hard for them to understand what their partner is asking for, looking for or needs and to communicate what they need and are looking for. Yeah. You know, you and I are, are in this space every day. We have more language, not all the language, but more language to mm -hmm. start to identify these concepts. But a lot of folks don't have language for this. So how would you recommend they get to yeah. a place where they can start that conversation? I actually had this situation. I actually had two versions of this situation. Version one is I believed that care was supposed to have a doorway into the lust space, that if I was in a good relationship where I felt really loved, that should be very sexy. And it just wasn't. <laughs> it never was. And it never became that way. So I had to stop criticizing myself for my emotional floor plan not being what I thought it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other part of that situation was that when I was in grad school, I dated other grad students and mm -hmm. we talked about our research all the time. And for me, that intellectual space of talking about affective neuroscience and the philosophy of science and the history of cinema, like all of that intellectual exploration is there's a water slide directly from <laughs> someone's research into the less space. And mm -hmm. then I married an artist <laughs> who just doesn't that's just I mean he's a genius in the things that he does mm -hmm. and he just like cannot join me in this space mm -hmm. and at first when I would talk about the science because like talking about the science is a way to like warm me up he would crack jokes and I felt hurt that he mm -hmm. was belittling this thing that was so meaningful to me mm -hmm. and it took me a long time to realize that for him like he's a cartoonist he writes comics he writes jokes for a living. Play <laughs> and laughter are it for him. Yeah. And I realized that it absolutely could be for me if I was willing to try something different from what I'd done all my life. Yeah. And it turns out doing it differently because all those other relationships I had ended. They were usually a great fit intellectually and a great fit physically and emotionally, 
kludge fest just <laughs> just a shit show mm-hmm. and this one in this oh my gosh in this relationship i'm so seen and held and known and loved and supported and it's amazing and how about it's worthwhile for me to try a different space mm-hmm. but Before I explored this with my partner, I did talk to my individual therapist about it Mm -hmm. because I did not want my partner to feel judged or blamed or to take it personally. So I needed to work through my own internal experience well enough to be able to bring it to him in a way that he could receive openly and warmly. These com- Even for me, these conversations are not hard and I had to have a conversation about it before mm. I could have the conversation. You mean these conversations are hard? Yes, these conversations are, are not easy. <laughs> they're, these conversations, they're hard. Yeah, they are. They are. It's really hard, you know, when, when we do attach a lot of meaning to wanting to connect with a partner, wanting to be perceived as a lover who is meeting a partner's pleasure goals, right? Mm-hmm. And also wanting to have your own pleasure and and share, I mean, it, there's a lot of pressure that people feel. And so it makes sense that people do get stuck in some, in some gridlock when they're having these conversations. But one of the things that comes up a lot in the couple's work that I do is there will be a mismatched effort in trying to resolve the problem. And I'm really oh, yeah. curious on your take there. What What's that about? Um, how do people get out of that kind of sticky situation where one partner's not willing to learn about this? They're not willing to talk about it. They're not willing to do their own work to bring yeah. you know, that part of the solution to the equation. Well, I think it's chapter eight. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to change. To create a context for this answer, let me say that when I was writing this book, it's the first time I've ever missed a book deadline mm-hmm. uh, because two weeks before the book was due, a friend of mine died. Oh, of I'm cancer. So she was about my age. She'd been married to her wife for about the same amount of time that I'd been married to my husband. It changed the book because I was confronted mm-hmm. with this very profound reality that like I knew intellectually, but here it was really viscerally that we are not guaranteed abundant time together with this. Like we are not guaranteed to be able to watch each other grow old. Mm-hmm. What we are guaranteed is change. Mm-hmm. And it is how we manage that change some of it intentional and wanted, and some of it imposed on us. How we manage that change is the defining characteristic of the quality of our relationships, I think. And so the three characteristics of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection is that they are friends who admire and trust each other, right? Two, they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for their relationship. They figure out what is the purpose of like rubbing our skins against each other. What value is added to our connection with each other for us to put our mouths on each other's genitals and suck each other's toes? Like, why do that? Because it contributes something valuable to the relationship. You decide that it matters, and because it's a priority, you create space for it. One of the tricky things is, in order to create space for it, you're going to have to eliminate some other things. Mm-hmm. that are filling up the space because like we're busy our calendars mm-hmm. are full and mm-hmm. sex is not the lowest effort activity that we can be engaging in so it <laughs> so has to true. you have to you have to care we, it's so much easier just to lie in bed and watch reruns together which is lovely and i do it on the regular but there's something specific 
for and it is normal for sex to drop off the priority list for some seasons in your life and sex is not important for every couple or every relationship mm -hmm. but the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection are the ones for whom it is a priority and so they find their way back to each other and then the third characteristic is that they are the couples who notice that they've been following somebody else's rules about who they're supposed to be as a sexual person and they decide they're not going to do it anymore mm. they're going to explore who they authentically are as a sexual person they're going to discover who their partner is authentically as a sexual person and who they are as a couple in their sexuality they're going to go on this adventure of finding each other through the forest of gender stuff and the sex imperatives that are trying to tell you how to do sex down to like the order of operations like which sexual behavior you're supposed to engage in first so when one partner is eager to change and the other partner is not ready for change it is normal not to be ready for change change is effortful and like i said we're busy and so kindness and compassion, like, yeah, I would not be interested in change either if I didn't have these consequences happening for me. Being kind and patient when a partner isn't ready is important. There are specific, I have actually specific prompts, like questions you can ask when your partner, it's called pre-contemplation. My master's degree is in public health. These are uh, uh, the trans theoretical models, motivational interviewing strategy for addressing change in behaviors. It was originally developed to quit smoking, uh, <laughs> but it works in so many contexts, including a relationship context. So if someone is in pre-contemplation, they are not even thinking about change. There are certain questions you can ask or conversations you can prompt to get them to start just thinking about change. Like, under what circumstances might you be interested? And if they're they're thinking about change, they recognize that, yeah, they kind of wish things were different also, but they don't feel like they have what it takes to create any change. There are specific conversational prompts that you can have to help a person transition from thinking about change to preparation, to getting ready for change, and from preparation to action, actually creating the change. Fortunately, there's a lot of science about how to have those conversations, but the most important thing is the attitude that you bring mm -hmm. to the person's lack of interest. Uh, you get into a chasing dynamic when you insist that the person change, the more you push and insist that that person change, the more defensive they're going to get. And if you escalate to pushing more because of their defensiveness, they're going to get even more defensive. And now you're in that deadlock, right? Mm -hmm. So respecting that it probably took you, the person who's interested in change, some time to get to the place where you are interested in change, where you have an idea of what change would even look like. Mm -hmm. They deserve the grace of time to transition into being curious about creating change also. And there's mm. like specific sentences and prompts for each stage of change in the book. Mm. Well, thank you. This has been so insightful. And for people who are really curious on how to have that conversation and really how to create this context that Emily's talking about, where you and your partner do get to have more pleasure accessible moments. Her book is an amazing guide. Please go out and buy it yesterday, if not sooner. And Emily, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do or what you're working on next? 
The website is just emilynagoski.com. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, I am going on book tour. There will be live in-person events, which is thrilling. I love talking about this stuff with people more than anything else in the world. Um, and the book is available in every format. Let me throw a specific uh, appeal for the audiobook. I put mm -hmm. special in investment in it. I, I think it's I think it's really good. What's different about it than the paperback or the hardcover? There's music cues. There are special audio-only footnotes and comments. I'll just say that when I was reading the trauma section, the sound engineer cried so hard he had to turn off his mic. Aww. Well. Aww. Well, I've always enjoyed your audiobooks, in part because you have such uh, an animated way of reading, and it's really fun and engaging. So much yeah, more it's enjoyable. Just this. It's just this all the time. This is just yeah. me. <laughs> it's great, but I'll definitely be looking for that and encourage others to do the same thing with your new book, too. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on YouTube at Modern Intimacy. If you have questions you want answered on the podcast, feel free to email me at question at getnakedpodcast.com. Our Modern Intimacy team is here to help you and to provide you with support. Feel free to schedule a free 30-minute consultation at the link in our show notes. And don't forget to join our newsletter for insights, surveys, and articles sent directly to your inbox. You can sign up at modernintimacy.com slash newsletter. New episodes drop every Tuesday. I'll see you next week. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with me, Dr. Kate, or with Modern Intimacy. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.